Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I am Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish, this is the COVID edition <laughs> of A Drink with yeah. a Friend. Since mm-hmm. we've last recorded, um, you have had the demon bug. Right. And this week I have it. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. How does that happen? How does that happen? It's a little thing that we've known for a couple of years called a pandemic, but man, it's Mm. weird when it hits your front porch, right? So, I mean, I think most listeners can, uh, you know, they're probably nodding along like, yeah, it's weird, right? Because I think a whole lot of us got it in the past 10 days or so. Yeah. 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 I think uh, I was uh, talking with some attorneys in the Denver area and they said that their positive test rate is like 38%. Right Jeez, now. So yeah. everyone who goes to get tested, 38% or 33% or some insane number of right. them uh, are coming back as positive. And I just thought, oh, this this really is as contagious as they said it was. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, we went back to school this week. As a teacher, it's just been a doozy of like, what half of the class is going to be here today? You know, mm, um, yeah. it, it actually has not been as bad as I thought it would be, but we still have at least every class, someone online and um, all wearing N95 masks right now. Hopefully it's very short lived. I mean, Lord willing, that's what they say, right? South Africa, yeah, it that's right. peaked and then dropped really fast. So maybe that's what we'll get to. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. But in the meantime... Mm-hmm. I am drinking a whole lot of tea. So today, <laughs> this is the first time all day that I haven't been drinking something warm, hmm. um, which means my throat feels a little scratchier than it has all day. And my I'm probably and it's kind of the end of the day as we're recording. So I'm drinking yeah. a, a blackberry bubbly, um, which is the first thing with kind of any f- flavor outside of tea flavor that I've had. <laughs> All day today. And I, I got to be honest, I wish I would have brewed myself a warm cup of tea for this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of one of those weeks where that's all you want to chug, really. But um, it is. I get it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are you drinking? Um, Along the same lines, it's a sparky water. It is. But you know what? To tie it in with today's chat topic, mine is from H-E-B. Uh, ah. So it is cranberry, raspberry, Sparky water and kind of to further tie it in with the the times of which we live in. Um, man, our shelves are rather empty. So mm. I normally do not get this flavor, but it was what we had. And you know, you get what you get. So it's actually not too bad. I wouldn't normally go for it, but I like it. So what flavor is it? Cranberry raspberry, which is a weird Ooh. I don't know. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. It'll do, mm. you know. Whatever. It's kind of like the uh it's it's for me it's like the coconut lifesavers. You know, <laughs> oh, right, if right, they're there I'll have one. It's fine. Yeah, if it's in the roll and you got to eat it that's fine, but it's definitely yeah. not my favorite. Exactly. So I I toyed with the idea of putting putting in a, a, some gin and making a gin and tonic because this is the end of a workday for you and me. This is not when we normally record, but I was like, you know what? I don't even want that. That's this is not worth yeah. a shot of gin. Don't waste, I'm not going to do don't that. Don't waste nah. good gin on that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. that's all yeah. I got. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, um, you you made an interesting comment. You said based on uh, today's topic, and to remind the listeners what we're doing here, we began the year with some audacious goals, some big goals, some goals that people might actually look at us and say, 
hey, you're crazy for doing that. And my goal um, was to be on a fast for six months from social media. The reason why people might say I'm crazy is because, yes, I still write. Um, I engage in some marketing on the side. Uh, my day job as an attorney doesn't really require me to do it, but these other two endeavors sort of do. And so mm-hmm. I have gotten a good bit of pushback saying like, how are you going to grow your platform? How are you going to market a book? How are you going to do this as a writer? Um, we can talk all about that more later, but that was my audacious goal was to say something, to do something, to engage in something that would make me a better human and that would cost me something. And mm-hmm. I'm already finding that it has cost me something. You think? And so, okay. yeah, well, yeah. And we'll, again, we'll unpack. We've got months and months and months to talk about these yeah, audacious goals. Yeah. But to that end, your audacious yeah. goal is super fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And so I want to talk about that yeah. today. Well, I wanted to make mine the same as yours, right? I wanted to take six months off of social media completely in an experimental observational way, you know, not to stick it to the man, not because Zuckerberg will feel a dent in my absence (laughs) or because of my absence, but just to see, is it possible to be a writer without a presence online? Uh, You know, it wouldn't be a pure experiment seeing as I already am online to some degree, but nonetheless, I'm, I was just as curious as you. However, I do have a book coming out in a few weeks, and I don't think the publishers would appreciate me saying, guys, thanks for the book. That was great, but I'm going to just be absent for a month or or three or six. Um, So good luck marketing the book. So another time for me. This time, I decided to go with another challenge that I wanted to practice or experiment with for a while now as well. And we've dubbed it the 100 Mile Radius Challenge. What this Mm. is, I will say it came not from my own idea. It came originally from a book I read about 15 years ago uh, called Animal, Vegetable, Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read it? Mm -hmm. Uh, I have not read that book. I've read a lot of Barbara Kingsolver. And we have talked about this book. So I feel like like I've read it vicariously through you. Is that a thing? Got it. That is a thing. Oh, totally. That's a thing. Um, It is a book that I read while I lived in Turkey. You know, it was probably within our first year of living there. So it really got into my bones, this idea of what does it mean to be where you live, you know, and what does it mean to connect with the land? And in the case of her experiment in particular, what does it mean to live seasonally? So their family um, experimented with eating food from only within a hundred mile radius, largely subsisting on their own crops and mm-hmm. uh, filling in the gaps with uh, their neighbors. So they live on a farm in Virginia and uh, they wanted to basically do their shopping at farmer's markets and CSAs and the like. And um, it's a fascinating read. You wouldn't think it would be, you know, what? how could you yeah. spend several hundred pages talking about that? It's fantastic. Um, yeah. Mine are, and our families is a little bit broader. So uh, we are doing a 100-mile radius life. It includes food, but we're not going to be strict about this in the sense of um, if we can't get it, we're going to do without it. And the reason is yeah, because yeah. Uh, reality, right? We live in a pandemic yep. right yep. now and things change from day to day. So, totally. you know, we might be able to say, oh yeah, this is where we're going to get our milk. And then one day it not show up and then we have to yeah, scramble. Right. And I want to do something that is also life-giving, meaning I don't want to just 
you know, kind of like a Lenten fast, how the point isn't yeah. necessarily to like prove your metal to show like what a good person you are. I don't want it to be about that. I want to mess up because I want to see where are the gaps in my uh, yeah. community? Where, where yeah. is it really hard to find what one needs? Um, because basically what I'm doing with this challenge is I'm asking the question, is it possible to live within a hundred miles? I want to say it is. You just have to do your work and your research. And um, yeah. I've got a lot of thoughts about that. And I'm learning a lot already, what, like 10 days into it. But um, I plan to spend these six months learning if it's possible, not so much starting off right away, doing it out of the gate with no problem. And Kyle has even already said, I think we might need to do this all year because it might take us six months to even figure out how to do this. So that's the gist of what I'm doing. That's good. That's good. Okay. So I have several uh, things I want to talk about with you today. Mm -hmm. One of those is the underlying philosophical idea, this uh, yeah. principle that we'll return to a little bit later called subsidiarity that's, um, that, that is for you comes from a very uh, deep Catholic place. It is not necessarily a Catholic only principle, um, right. but we'll, we'll return to that. So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's one thing I want to talk about, but there, but there's a, a sort of a predicate that I want to talk about first before we get to the philosophy. Okay. I was listening to um, a podcast that I love. Some people will hate um, in this very polarized time. Mm. You know, Barry Weiss. People are going <laughs> to love her. People are going to hate her. Yeah, you know, I love her. Listen, it's politics. This is it is what it is. But she had a, a gentleman on whose name escapes me right now on one of the episodes, and he was talking about luxury beliefs. Yes, now, I, I, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating episode and it's a, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, he kind of pushes back against, frankly, some of the things that I believe in um, and says that these are very luxurious beliefs, beliefs that can be obtained by sort of these uh, upper crust, uh, highly educated, gated community white folks who sort of uh, stand at a distance from the real problems of the world and can believe all of these certain things that don't really cost them anything. Right. And so, um, you know, I could give some examples of luxury beliefs, but you, you could sort of imagine what they are. It's things like defund the police is, is one of them or, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of some, some issues of fungibility among workers and, and these sort of things. Um, that's a whole another conversation. It's a conversation for another day. And he's not talking about slow food. But as he was talking, I was kind of, as you were talking just a moment ago, I was kind of remembering back to that podcast. And I was thinking through some of the things that he couched as luxury beliefs, like things that only, you know, sort of the the more affluent uh, people could, could, could and can do. Right. Um, and it strikes me that some people might say, Tish, this is a luxury belief. This mm-hmm. is one of those things that, you know, your privilege allows you to do. And so yeah. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Um, why do this? And and is this a luxury belief? belief? Yeah, it's a great uh question. And I would say if I've gotten any pushback so far, this has been the only form of it. You know, I, I had a few people just say, hey, in your experiment, unpack more of the idea of how this is privileged. And there are two thoughts I have so far. 
by the by the time I've done this for several months, I might have all sorts of ideas, but this is what I what I'm thinking about 10 days in. The first one is I do want to push back on the pushback about whether this truly is a luxury belief or a place of privilege. I would argue that perhaps in the US in my environment, which is a small town next to a big city where I have a car yeah. and I have access to things that, yeah, it's probably a slight place of privilege. But um, in my experience of uh, living outside the U.S. for quite a while, as well as traveling and exploring different places outside the U.S., I wonder sometimes if we Americans can be a little ethnocentric and assume yeah. that so many of the places outside of our culture and worldview are the same way just within a different cultural dynamic. Like we put the American worldview onto some other country that perhaps has a completely, completely 180 way of looking at the world than we do. And so I push back on saying, I bet you more Americans would be surprised or I bet you more Americans would be, I bet you Americans would be more surprised than they thought they would be on how many people around the world actually do live within a hundred mile radius yeah. without even really trying because they have to, because they, they, that's they the eat within a hundred mile. Yeah. They eat within a hundred mile radius. They mm-hmm. shop within a hundred mile radius. They don't yeah. have access to Amazon. They don't have access right. to easy capital to get credit to use on a place like Amazon regardless of distribution channels and the ease of, of, of getting the package to their front door. Is that, that's kind of what you're saying? Totally. Yeah. Um, whenever we lived in Turkey and this was 10 years ago now, so I, things I'm sure have changed, but by and large, we, we never shipped anything. We never yeah. ate produce that was out of season because you literally could not get it. So right. whenever it was strawberry season, People went nuts. It was like, that's what you talked about with your neighbors and with the other foreigners. The strawberries are here. Did you see it? Did you right. see it? What are you going right. to do with the strawberries? Did you get a Did you get a flat of strawberries? Are you going to can it? Are you going to freeze them? What do you do? Um, yeah. And that's just part of life. So I would argue yeah. that those who think that this is privileged might not realize it's not quite as privileged as you think. Yeah. Yeah. Part two, though. Oh, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say... One of the things that as I think about, you know, as you're talking about, hey, the strawberries are in, did you see them? Did you get a flat of them? I think about my favorite, maybe one of my favorite commentary slash cooking slash cultural anthropological explorations of all time, all of the Anthony Bourdain shows. Right. Right. And you watch and you watch Bourdain go into these places that aren't extremely affluent and and he'll connect with a local chef and what do they do they always go to find the best street food in whatever that location is right it could be new orleans uh it could be somewhere in malaysia it doesn't it doesn't matter they're always going out to find the best street food and when they find the best street food what do they find they find local people who have bought local ingredients uh oftentimes you know miles from the coast or miles from the farm where the beef or the pig or the pork or what you know whatever the thing is comes from um it, it, and it is it's not slow food as fashion it's not no. this sort of luxurious <laughs> fashion belief it's like oh no this is where our stuff comes from cuz it's good yeah. where we can get it right yeah. and so it, it's not luxurious in any way but it's damn good 
Yeah. You know, when we lived in Turkey, you know, we lived on a bay. There would be times you would go to a cafe or a restaurant on a boat and you would go on the boat and find out what they caught. And that's what you ate. Like, it's not a matter of like, oh, we're going to be bougie now. It's like, well, this is what you get. And so it's the same idea. Yeah. And it is damn good because you can't get any fresher. I mean, it it was probably caught five minutes ago, you know, less than 100 feet from where you're standing. And it's made by a guy who's standing right in front of you. And so you know exactly how it was prepared and and with what method, with what spices, et cetera. So it's a whole thing. Yeah. 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 Um, And I think, and I think that that sort of begs the question to me, like what's more bougie? Is it more bougie to, (laughs) you know, order, uh, to have to order, uh, you know, your mass produced tea, um, in a box that comes from Amazon or is it, uh, more bougie to say, well, well, I really can't get tea, um, because it's not within a hundred mile radius of where I live. And so I, you know, not that you're not going to get tea that's packed by a local maker. Like I'm sure there are parameters around this, right? We'll, we'll get into those, but, but like, I'm not going to drink that thing because it's not from my location. I can't get to it easily. I can't, um, you know, get it to my doorstep. And so I'm going to substitute and do with what I have in my community. I mean, what's, what's more bougie? Um, one may be more expensive, but does that make it more bougie? Um, and then I would also say it probably doesn't even have to be more expensive. Right, right. There's a lot of assumptions we're bringing into this as Americans and as people who are used to buying things at the click of a button, really. And so I guess that brings me to my second point. And that's to say, perhaps this is a little privileged. Yes. Um, I do make this argument with a lot of things that we do online. For example, you know, I teach an a workshop about how to create your rule of life. A rule of life is something that helps you unpack and kind of discover what your core values are. And then you write it out and it helps you say yes and no to decisions as they come along. One could argue that's a very privileged thing to do, right? So many people just have to survive day to day. And so the fact that you even can take the time to decide what am I here for? That's very privileged. Um, there's all sorts of privileged things we do. Um, and to that, I say, because it's privileged, perhaps we have a responsibility to use our privilege to explore whether these things not only are possible, but how to make them more accessible. So yeah. because I have the privilege, let's say my privilege is that I work from home and I have a car. And uh, my kids are a little bit older, so I don't have to deal with toddlers and nap times. And so I have more freedom, perhaps, to drive within my 100-mile radius to figure out who are the farmers that sell what at what price, yeah. who who's, uh, would benefit the most from my economic contribution, all those things. What then becomes an act of generosity from my privilege is to share this information with others and to make this more possible for other people. And that's where this comes to me. And I think of people like your wife, Amber, who are who's participating in making their farmers market in their community more. accessible or more of a thing, more of a reality in their community, not because she enjoys, you know, this hippie lifestyle of, of being around kombucha makers and, you know, herbal salves, but because she probably wants to make this available to her neighbors. And that's what we do. And it needs 
And it needs to be available to our neighbors. And I think that this is, that's a good point. I think one, you know, one reason I bring that up to just be really clear and fair and like to out yeah. m- put my own cards on the table. I'm so tired of this conversation that I could puke. Yeah, Sorry. sure. But no, that's just me being me. I'm just going to tell you what I think. And I, you know, I'm so tired of everything being called bougie or privileged or whatever. I think mm-hmm. there's some truth to it and there's some critique there that we need to listen to. But by the same token, man, we live in a world in which the supply chains are breaking. I mean, I read right. more, I read another article today that said in the last two or three months, the term supply chain has actually supplanted the term interest rate in Google searches, which means we're more fixated on supply chains than we are on inflation. And so Mm -hmm. in a world in which we have inflation that's highest it's been since the 80s, we have supply chains breaking faster than ever, then don't we owe it to our local communities to say, hey, look, when the supply chains run low or when things are unaffordable on the shelves, here are the places that you can go in your hometown to get what you need and to support each other. I think it's super yeah. important. And and so I think removing yeah. it from this conversation of what's bougie, what's proletariat, what's, you know, uh, privilege, what's not privilege. Uh, you know, I remember a while back hearing someone criticize one of your friends, one of the people that you know in the min- minimalism space, Josh Becker, and saying that he his his minimalism was privileged. And I remember thinking about that and saying, yeah, I mean, I get the argument, but the dude's choosing to do without. <laughs> like, it's a laughable yeah. argument to some degree. He's right. choosing to do without for the order of his family. And I think when we begin to choose to do without or we choose uh, make choices um, that benefit our local community for very specific and local reasons, um, then we can begin to say, look, maybe this is privilege in the way it's it's uh, defined, but it's a privilege that I'm exercising out of wisdom. And mm-hmm. and here's what I'm going to do with that privilege, and here's how I'm going to uh, use that privilege for the for the good of the order, so to speak. And I think you've 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 yeah. certainly thought that through. Well, and you know, I could just go ahead and say what I think, which is that sometimes I wonder if we use that excuse um, as the easy button, like eh, yeah, that's, right. And so, you know, we all have methods of privilege or forms of privilege in our life, and we all have hardships in our life. And yeah, so if you right. can do what you can with what you've been given, then do it, man. It's yeah. okay. Is this Tish where we're going to lose half our listeners? Is that? <laughs> it might happen? be. You know hmm. what? This year might be because I'm feeling a little bit more <laughs> free to say what I think than I have in a really long time. So we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, but cross I'm, our fingers. Right, right. I will say to tie in with the idea of supporting our uh, communities. The the phrase that comes to mind a lot, I've, I've written about this before. There was a World War II slogan back whenever uh, everyone was trying to promote, you know, victory gardens and rubber drives. And, and uh, what, what do you call that whenever you have rations, rations for, mm-hmm. you know, the war effort? There was yep. a slogan that you would see around like magazine ads and billboards that was uh, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Yeah, totally. 100%. And so that's the phrase that just comes to mind about this year. So it's not so much that like, if I can't find this thing that I would normally buy on a whim on Amazon without even thinking about it in my local sphere, well, then by golly, I'm just going to order it anyway, because 
I, you know, I want it. And that's, you know, almost kind of this Veruca salt. I want it now. Um, I want to see what it feels like to be a human being that just know, like just says, oh, well, I guess I won't have it. You know, I guess yeah. I'm not going to have yeah. that new thing. Um, kind of the use it up thing. One one reason, practical reason why I think this is going to take us longer than six months is because I want to use up what we currently have. I'm not going to throw out anything we've already bought because we bought it farther than 100 miles away or, you yeah. know, it came from that. And so we've got a freezer with meat in it. And this meat I bought legit from ButcherBox. We, we had a ButcherBox yeah. subscription, which I think is fantastic. It supports farmers, but not local to me farmers. So we're, we're pausing that. And I'm going to, I'm on the search for a local to me rancher where we can yeah. get our yeah. meat. And I think I found one, but my point is, it's not like I'm going to just throw out all our chicken and fish and, and mm-hmm. beef out of our, our, our freezer. So there's yeah. a lot of nuance to this. I'm not going to be a purist yep. here at all. Yeah. And, and, and pro tip for you, Tish, and for everyone who's out there listening, when you find your local to you uh, farm farmer who raises cows and cattle, uh, as we mm-hmm. do, we do this with our meat. Um, yeah. I think all of our meat right now, except for maybe our chicken. Um, be careful, man. You think that fattier beef is, is, is what you want. <laughs> yeah. Boy. I mean, grass fed fattier beef. It's super fatty stuff, man. That, that fat will coat your mouth. So just be careful. <laughs> just get it a little leaner than you think. Just all right. word to the wise. Right. Word to the wise. Good to know. So, Good to know. so as we're uh, talking this out, as we're talking about local t- to you and there's an underlying philosophy that that you've uh, sort of invoked in this i read i read this in your newsletter um and it's the principle of subsidiarity now this is an organizational principle that's used a lot of times um you you'll see this in conservative thinking circles um frankly sometimes it's misused in conservative thinking circles um about organization for government, right? So, which is fine. It can still be an organizational principle for government. Um, For those of our libertarian listeners out there, I'm not poo-pooing that. I'm just saying that's (laughs) where, where I first came across the word maybe 20 some odd years ago. Um, But, but you're invoking it here, the principle of subsidiarity uh, as it relates to local purchasing decisions. And so I was fascinated that you use that word. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit and tell me where it came from, what it means to you, um, and how you're using it as a guide uh, for this sort of challenge. So the word subsidiarity, I'm sure there's an official economic definition, but for the sake of being a normal person who's doing this just as someone who wants to be a good neighbor, uh, the definition that works best for me is this idea that um, decisions, and I would say actions, should be made as locally as possible. And that larger organizations' decisions or actions should be invoked only when it, or at the end, when it helps strengthen the local ones. So for example, um, some sort of larger purchase or a purchase from some larger company happens in order to support the smaller entity that it's ultimately for. So this is a terrible example, but it's the first one that comes to mind is if you've got, if you're starting a local coffee shop, let's say, and your supplier for, you know, you've got your local roaster and you've got your local farmer who provides the milk, but you need to go cups or something. And so for that, because there is no local 
uh, store where you can buy that from, you're going to perhaps buy it at the big box store here in town. So you're yeah, still yeah. Um, you're still buying from your the owner who lives in your neighborhood, but it he owns a chain that is a nationwide brand. That's an example. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. So that's the that's the basic idea when it comes to kind of an individual movement. Yes, there are definitions that have to do with politics and economics. And I find that actually fascinating. Like I like yeah. nerding out about that, but that's not really what I want to get into for this mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for this experiment. So, yeah, the idea of subsidiarity to me to kind of make it just more poetic, it has to do with the fact or really it comes down to the idea that I should know my neighbor a little bit more than I know someone I've only met on Instagram. Yeah. That's maybe yep. a shorthand way to say it. So yeah. I've got my yeah. neighbor next door and I know he's getting his PhD in philosophy. I know he just recently quit his job at the local farm. Um, and I know that his cat's not doing well. His cat is sick and he's, he's kind of sad right now because it might mean near the end of his cat's life. I like that. I know that. And honestly, I've hardly spent any time on Instagram this year so yeah. far. So I've, Maybe somebody else I know is going through the same thing, but they're not in my radius. And it's not because I don't care, but it's because I need to know that about my next door neighbor, at least as much as I know it about somebody I only know digitally. Yeah. And, and the idea, the idea is that it's, it's, it's really like we go to the smallest organizing unit that we can, and then we expand out. And so, you know, for instance, what your family needs better than your neighbor right? You and your neighbor know what your two households need better uh, than, you know, maybe the state does. Certainly if you and your neighbor and your, our favorite local coffee shop, Dave and Karen, if you guys all got together and said, Hey, what does this community need from a, uh, a local sustainable flower source? You could certainly find that much easier um, than your local big big box grocery store could. And so right. the the idea here is that you start at the smallest organization uh, unit possible. Mm-hmm. Is that that's that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so, you know, it's a little more straight and narrow when it comes to food. You know, it's obvious to say like where can I get my chicken and and does this bell pepper come from a farm less than 100 miles? But it's a little more nebulous when it comes to relationships. And yet this is what I really want to um, explore and see what's possible. Um And by that, I mean, you know, a few weeks, maybe a month ago, I wrote a piece uh, that a lot of people resonated with about the idea of what online communities are for. And I've just noticed an uptick in um, the word community and membership Mm -hmm. with a lot of people, you know, calling their Instagram followers community or um, if you purchase something from a company, you're now part of their community or you're a member mm. or part of their tribe. Hey, and I find that that's interesting. Good, that's yeah, it is interesting. And what if you purchase followers on Instagram? Do they, <laughs> do they become your community? Is that a, it's a very mm. odd thing. And so I, what's interesting to me is I think all these, these brands, these companies and these people mean well, because they're tapping into this core, very human understanding that we all want to belong. We all want to be part of something. So they're tapping into that. The problem is when these online spaces replace our local versions of that. So I'm not a diehard about like, don't you dare join a membership site online, or don't you dare love following someone online. Um, 
because of, you know, some particular, I don't even know how Instagram works anymore, but they do some live at Thursday at 4 p.m. and you like to be there, you know, shame on you. That's not what I mean at all. All I mean is simply, do those things help you be a better person in your offline life? Um, If so, great. And that's a good point. Tish, I want to pause there. This is kind of where there's some crossover between what you're doing and and what I'm doing. Uh I I had a little bit of pushback last week from somebody, um, and it wasn't bad at all, but it was just, hey, I have a family member that has this very rare condition. I really don't know where else to get information. There's this amazing Facebook group where we share our comings and our goings and our struggles with this thing yada, yada, yada. Like I wouldn't be able to find that in my local community if I didn't have this online space. Well, well, even using your principles of subsidiarity, that's actually probably the smallest organized unit or space that the person could go to, to really have some interaction to gain some insight and knowledge. And so it really Mm -hmm. does function as a community. I mean, if you live in a town of 5,000 people and you have, you know, MS, where else are you going to go to to have community with people who have who have this this you know particular uh, disease? And so, I do I do want to say there are some times when you have to go to the larger organizing principles. You mm-hmm. just you know to go back to Cal Newport's digital minimalism. You have to have a purpose, and you have to know your purpose going into it. And I would think it would be the same thing with if you had to venture outside of your hundred mile radius to go purchase something. Yeah, yeah. All all this is really about is thinking through our decisions and asking whether, you know, the, the phrase that comes to mind in connection with subsidiarity, which I'll get back to in a minute, is um, Andy Crouch coined this phrase in uh, the TechWise family, which I really like and I keep coming back to, uh, is easy everywhere. And he makes this comment that technology, the a chief problem with technology right now is that it it creates this culture of easy everywhere Mm -hmm. where nothing is hard anymore or nothing even is remotely challenging. And so we, we as humans tend to go for the lowest common denominator of challenge of difficulty. And so, you know, we are going to microwave something if there's a microwave right there, instead of heating up the soup over the stove, if you don't have a microwave, well, then you're probably going to take five minutes to heat up the soup on the stove. And it's not really going to take that much more time, but you don't have the microwave to just go to the shortcut. Um, And so he uses that when it comes to technology and it's fantastic book. But um, when it comes to this idea, I, I keep thinking of easy, everywhere in tandem with what am I willing to give up even just for six months for a more human life, for a more human existence? Am I willing to give up just a little bit of easy everywhere um, to experience something that I don't even yet know what I'm missing? You know, am I, what am I missing out on by ordering something online just because I, it's so easy at the click of a button, I can reorder, I can subscribe to something and totally forget I even subscribed. And, you know, deodorant shows up at my doorstep and like, oh, good, I won't run out again. You know, it's, it's silly, but added up, that's a lot of little things that perhaps someone down the street could have provided for you. Maybe for a few more dollars, maybe, you know, it takes a little more effort, you got to put on your shoes, but it might be worth it. Because you're living in a more human way. And ultimately, that's what I think of when I think of the subsidiarity. It's living more human. Mm. Um, So the catechism of the Catholic Church actually does address the concept of subsidiarity. I'm not going to read the entire part of it, but I will link to it in the show notes. But um, 
there's a section of it. It's basically points 1878 to 1896 that gets into the core meat of what subsidiarity means and why the church at large says it matters. And I hinted at this in my my piece about um, the 100 mile radius idea that when I first became Catholic, I don't know how you felt, Seth, but it was a bit of a turnoff that the church acted like they had all kinds of say in my life that I wasn't used to um, It felt a little bit of an annoyance. It felt a little bit of like an intrusive mother-in-law. Um, but at this point, I, I do see it as a gift now that they care about the details, that, you know, that there is a bit of um, unity in the idea behind what's best for us as humans. Yeah. Um, and so that's a whole other topic. But I will just share. So, um Sections 1890 to 1896 is the summary of everything beforehand. So I'm just going to read a tiny, tiny little bit of that. Um, I'm not going to read it all, but 1890 says, There is a certain resemblance between the unity of the divine persons and the fraternity that men ought to establish among themselves. So in other words, the way we interact with each other as humans, just by nature of who we are, that we're made in the image of God, reflects the Trinity. It reflects mm-hmm. the love and the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, it, I'll skip down to 1892. It says, the human person is and ought to be the principal, the subject, and the object of every social organization. In other words, mm-hmm. it all comes down to people. This isn't yeah. about money or the bottom line. I mean, even though that kind of ties into humans and people, yeah. but that's not the end game. The end game is human flourishing. That's yeah. what yeah. That's what we should care about. Um yeah. 1894 says, in accordance with this principle of subsidiarity, neither the state nor any larger society should substitute itself for the initiative and responsibility of individuals and intermediary bodies. Obviously, that can get into the politics, but the way I see that um, more philosophically as someone who lives in my town is I don't want to give Jeff Bezos the privilege of buying something and giving it to me that I could enjoy from a, a shop in my town like he he's robbing me of the opportunity to um enjoy a consumer purchaser you know uh whatever economic relationship with my neighbors and yeah. i don't want him yep. to take that from me so yeah. um and then finally uh the last one It says, um, where sin has perverted the social climate, it is necessary to call for the conversion of hearts and appeal to the grace of God. Charity urges just reforms. There is no solution to the social question apart from the gospel. That's a whole thing to unpack, but it ultimately kind of gets to that idea, maybe a little bit with the privilege of in doing so, um, we should care about, about social justice according to the gospel and what that might look like and what it looks like to see everybody as beloved children of God who are made in the image and uh, likeness of the divine. And therefore, what does it mean to live in relationship with them in community? So, yeah. Yeah. I love it. So the question is, and maybe this is the question that we can all be contemplating together. um, What is that going to mean for your family over the next six months? Right. It's like all well and good, but okay, but what does it mean? Right. Right. Um, right. So in some ways I will argue, you know, I, I will, I will go ahead and acknowledge that it's not like we're going from one side of the spectrum to the other here. We already do 
somewhat live locally in the sense of I like to buy things. Um, you know, we we eat mostly whole foods. We like to support local restaurants over chains. So some of that we already do. But um, so I'm not going to pretend like we have to suddenly shift everything that we've already been doing. But for the next six months, we are going to make a concerted effort to, again, start off slowly and graciously. Um, whenever we go on date nights, whenever we go out to eat, we are going to choose the locally owned restaurants and cafes um, instead of the chains. Now that gets a little yeah. tricky, right? Because the chain is still owned by someone who lives in my town. So it's not at all to say they are bad people or that's not, um, that's not caring, but this is just to get a little more granular, you know, I'm going to, instead of going to, for example, Taco Cabana, I don't know if you have Taco Cabana where you are. Nope. Um, okay. Well, I think it's a Texas chain. So, you know, maybe there's some thing to that, but pretend like it's nationwide. Instead of going to Taco Cabana for breakfast tacos, I am going to go to San Pedro de Limon. This is our little taco shack in our neighborhood that makes fantastic uh, breakfast tacos with homemade tortillas. It takes a tiny bit more effort because they don't have a drive-thru, but you know what? Yeah. It's okay. I can yeah. live. Yeah. That's an example. So it's it's yeah. really subtle. It's not a very big deal. Um I'm going to do more research. I've already been doing a lot of research about some staples that I get from HEB, you know, our local grocery chain, which I know is locally owned. It's based in Kerrville, um, which is not, it's less than a hundred miles from me, but um, that doesn't mean everything that they provide for me. It comes from less than a hundred miles. So I'm going to just start researching that. I'm going to try to prioritize those things. Yeah. Um, When I do go to that store, I'm going to shop every Saturday and some Thursdays when I'm not at the school at our farmer's market, I'm going to try and get things there first. Um, I'm going to try to do without if I can't find it there and uh, go ahead and get what I need when it's, you know, urgent or whenever it's a necessity from HEB, I'm basically going to try and do it as locally as possible. Um, One thing I did appreciate about Barbara King Solver's experiment was everybody in their family, I believe they had three kids maybe, um, got one exemption. Like they got a kind of treat that they would still try to, you know, do as ethically as possible. But um, her husband's was coffee. And I've really appreciated that because my Word. thought was like, whoa, shoot, because yep. coffee beans do not grow well here in Central Texas. Nope. What am I going to do? Um, so I'm giving myself the grace to to have coffee, but I'm going to buy it from a roaster that I just found that lives a couple miles down the street. That yeah. kind of thing. I'm going to see what yeah. that's like. It's going to cost a little more money, but yep. and that's kind of where the privilege comes in. But we're going to see how it's possible. Maybe it means drinking one cup less. A day or something. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, so, and I that's think my answer think, with the food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I don't. I, the, again, the idea here is not to give yourself lashes, right? It's to organize your life to the best extent that you can around the most local unit that you can. And right. I think if we thought about those things more, we would we would probably give up mm-hmm. a lot of things and do without a lot of things. And there are a lot of things I will not do without until the supply chains absolutely shut off. Like yeah. I'm going to drink my coffee. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm going to be grateful for it. And I'm going to thank the Lord for it every morning when I sip it. That's right. Um, and then, so when it comes to community, just to kind of wrap up, this is where your challenge kind of dovetails fairly well with mine as well. Um, I am going to prioritize local relationships over 
um, digital relationships. So mm-hmm. a, an easy example for me is I've thought about a friend who I know they had a COVID case in their family. Instead of just seeing if they said something on Instagram, I'm going to text her. Like yeah. that's a really straightforward, simple human kind of thing to do. I yeah. am part of a neighborhood book club this year for the first time in my life. We've all, hey. we all just started it. We, that's we, awesome. this is our brand new endeavor because there's seven of us that have all wanted to be in a book club and we're just doing it and it's all neighbors. Like I think the one, the person who lives farthest from me is a mile away. Um, so we're going to meet once a month. I'm going to do my best to have people over once a month. I know COVID makes it, you know, who's to say whether people can come over, but as best we can, I like having people over for dinner. And um, so we're going to try and do that a little more. I'm going to try to meet with a friend once a week, if I can, again, Um, even if that looks like staying outside, I've learned from experience to not use perfection as an excuse to just throw in the towel and say, like, if it can't be exactly how I want it, I'm not going to bother. Um, so yeah. even if it looks like standing outside or sitting outside with a cup of coffee and it's slightly cold, um, connecting with people matters enough to where um, it's worth it. And like we were talking about in your newsletter, which I think really hints at this well, um, you know, what does it look like to just kind of starve yourself or deprive yourself a little bit of those digital connections mm-hmm. just enough to where you realize that you want to be fed locally. Um, You know, so if you don't just knee jerk reaction to that Facebook group you're part of, or that Twitter hashtag that you follow, um, if you just back off from doing that a little bit, perhaps you will crave more of, you know, going down to your local coffee shop with a friend. So that's that's what I'm thinking in general. Mm -hmm. I love it. So the idea for both of our challenges is simply put, be more human, man. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a good nutshell of, of what we're talking about here. Yep. That's so right. let's go do it. So I would encourage our listeners, whether it's give up social media for six months, which many of you are doing with me, or whether it's shop locally, which I'm sure many of you will do with Tish, or whether it's something else altogether, um, find a way to be more human, to live more mm-hmm. humanly um, and humanely, and to like each other yeah. better. Because we don't, we don't do that. We don't do the liking each other part well these days. Right. Which honestly, that's another huge reason. And maybe this is part two of our of our conversation, but a huge reason is so that we don't self-select so often, you know, yeah, when we're online. Totally. It's so easy to select who we're gonna be around and then before we know it, we're in an echo chamber. But yeah, it's what yeah. it's these filter bubbles we love to create filter bubbles. Um all right. So Tish, uh as we wrap this up today, tell me what is one thing Uh, that is bringing you beauty. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of choices I had and um, I've narrowed it down to a newsletter, a sub stack that I found the end of last year, the end of 2021 that I think you would like. It's delightful. It's a guy named Joseph Massey. He is a poet and he just, he writes a poem, a poem every couple days and publishes it on Substack. And that's all it is. And his point is simply, he says, to just add a little beauty to your inbox. And Aww. and I love it. I love it. So, Come on, Joseph. Um, right. So he is fantastic. I think he might have a book coming out. So that's fantastic. Um, a, a book of poetry, which, of course, I'm going to pre-order if that's the case. But sure. um, I'm going to read Absolutely. you. I'm going to read you one that he just published five days ago. It's called The Walk. 
And he says, at dusk, the lamps flick on behind windows, that spectral amber glow, and I'm dizzy with nostalgia for an almost forgotten dream. At dusk, shadows deepen before they fade, engraved in asphalt and old snow slumped like ash against a curb. I hold my hands to my face and breathe into my palms. Thank God. Thank God for the freezing wind. That's it. And that's way to go. That's what showed up Come in my on. inbox. And it's like, oh, I need that. It's just such a delightful pause from all the noise. So I will yeah. link to his yeah. sub stack and I want everyone to subscribe to him and perhaps yes. pre-order his book. All of so, you. All of you go hooray, do that. Hooray for yeah. him. Okay. Stop what so, you're doing. <laughs> pull over to the side of the road. If you're listening in your car, subscribe right. to his inbox. There's a sub stack. That's right. That's right. Okay. So Seth, what is adding more beauty to your life right now? So... I guess we were both on the poetry tip. I don't even know that that was yeah. intentional, but Not I've been sick, as you know, and so I've read a ton, um, which, in fact, we'll we'll get to more of that in a minute. But I've I've read so much that I, I'm I'm a little bit worried that the books are starting to come together into one massive book. Mm. <laughs> but in any event, um, I've been reading a book called The Gospel in Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, it was edited by Margaret Ellsberg. It is a wonderful book. The majority of the book is his, it's his, his poetry, his writings, letters, even his terrible sermons. And they're truly terrible. Um, Are they? Okay. Yeah, they're awful. But in any event, um, the, the, the book is really well done because in between these uh, a sort of eras of his life and these writings, um, Ellsberg will write a commentary on his life and give you a brief biography and sort of what was going on in his life. And um, what I love about Hopkins was that um, he felt like a miserable failure throughout his whole life. I mean, his favorite poem, no one understood, no one liked it, uh, was never really printed until after his death. Um, Hmm. Most of his poetry, in fact, met was met was critically panned. Like it was not loved. Um, hmm. And so when he went to his deathbed, the, and and to add insult to injury, he had given he was English and he gave up a, a, a life as a wealthy Anglican to become a Catholic and not just a Catholic, but a Jesuit Catholic in England okay. at a time yeah. when uh, sort of Catholic anti-Catholic sentiment was 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 pretty high. And so mm-hmm. he sort of gave up everything. And I think a lot of this led to his lack of critical success as a poet during his lifetime. So mm-hmm. he would have felt like at, at the age of 44, when he died, he would have felt like a miserable failure, like he gave up everything and no one really ever understood him. But after mm-hmm. he died, um, his poetry was sort of discovered. And then there's a quote from the book, and I think it came from the New Yorker. Uh, I think Ellsberg is, is quoting someone else. Uh, but the quote is, decades after his death, Hopkins became suddenly and then increasingly recognized for a poetic product which not only influenced countless writers who came after, but also articulated a religious vocation, articulated a religious vocation that served the greater glory of God through art. And I hmm. think the idea um, was that like his genius wasn't understood during his lifetime. And he didn't do it for the masses. He didn't do it for the platform. He didn't do it to build an audience. He did it because he felt like he best knew the language of God when he was writing poetry. And so that's what, what he did. And now all these years later, we see that. It, it is a beautiful book. And it's a reminder as a creator of any kind that we do not create for the person on the other side of the creator. 
we create because that is the language that we've been given the language of creativity. And that's why we do it. I have Mm -hmm. uh, taken pretty good notes on this book along with the several books that I have read during quarantine. Um, And for 2022, I'm going to be releasing my monthly reading notes, which are fairly copious again. um, Mm -hmm. And, and can even give more, if you like, but I'll be releasing a summary of those notes to all of my uh, sub stack subscribers, the folks who chip it a little bit of money because it ain't, ain't free to buy books. But um, I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about these books and looking over things like uh, this book that, that says a very particular thing to the artists of this age. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. I love that. And I love that you are using your newsletter in that way. And I love that you're blatantly telling people to do that. And I was actually going to add that because you're not on the socials right now. And so I don't want people to not know what you're doing. It's really yeah. delightful. I'm, I'm a sub- paying subscriber of yours. And um, fun fact, I mean, like, as an aside, I didn't know that he died at our age. Gosh. Yeah. That, super, I mean, when super I, young. That's going to change how I read his poetry. Dang. Um, yeah. And, and so if, if I get to the end of my 44th year and I feel like I haven't done anything of any account, I can look and say, well, neither did Gerard. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Neither <laughs> did a lot of people, honestly. Like I started Jane Eyre with the students today and she died at age 39 and she wrote one book. Of course, it's like one of the best books ever, but um I don't know. It's like, well, I've written five books more than Charlotte Bronte. Um, not nearly as good as Jane Eyre, uh, one of them, but still. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that that's kind of my point. It's like, I, I may feel like I haven't done anything, but I very clearly haven't written anything even comparable to Hopkins. So, I mean, I and I also didn't know that he was not appreciated in his time, as so many good artists are or aren't. Yeah. Because yeah. man, he's good. He's really yeah. good. I'm making yep. some of my kids memorize his stuff this year. So yeah, good it's stuff. it's worthy of memorization for sure. It really is. All right, guys. Well, that is going to do it for us this time. It is time to wrap it up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show and what we're doing here, as always, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. You can find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at a drinkwithafriend.com. And thank you very much in advance for doing so. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my Substack newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you right now? They can find me at sethhaines.com or sethhaines.substack.com. Either one. Yep. We'll get you to the right place. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter. I'm Tish Oxenwriter with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.